Our reading this morning is from the Gospel according to John. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name... I will do it. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. So I look back and realize that I actually preached on this exact passage of Scripture three years ago to the Sunday. Isn't that kind of crazy? Uh, but don't bother going back and listening to the podcast because, you know, reduce, reuse, recycle, right? Uh, it's not good to start off a sermon by lying to everybody in the room. Um, so human beings are unlike any other creature in that we name things. We name things. Ever since Adam named the animals in Eden, we've been coming up with words to describe our experiences, and this is one of the ways that we get understanding of our world. And, and one of the w- aspects of the world, our experience that we name, is our inner life, our emotions. What did we do to describe the fear of missing out before the word FOMO, right? But it names something that's painfully real. And so different cultures have different names for different experiences. For instance, Portuguese speakers have a word that has really no equal in the English language. The word is saudade, 
and I'm probably horribly mispronouncing that, um, despite the fact that I actually listened to some Portuguese music this weekend in order to prepare to say that right. But, but the word saudade has this sense of longing to it, almost like nostalgia, but, but it's even more than that. Because what it is, is it's that stinging feeling that we all know when something good is now gone. It's the painful presence of absence, saudade. And so this feeling is, is what confronts us at the loss of a loved one, at the loss of innocence, at the loss of home. One Portuguese poet defined it this way. He said, it's a desire for the beloved thing made painful by its absence. And so as we turn to our text this morning in verse 1, Jesus says to his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. See, Jesus is leaving and he knows that his disciples are going to feel something like saudade. They're going to experience the painful presence of his absence. And so his disciples, who are in the midst right now of scrambling to find out why is he leaving, where is he going, and what could this possibly mean for us, Jesus comes and he comforts them. And, and we can relate to the disciples' troubled hearts. We can relate to it's what it's like to experience the apparent absence of Jesus when we need him most, right? Whether it's tragedy that strikes or we walk through the valley of death's shadow or we are overcome with kind of a malaise of meaninglessness, we turn to Jesus and we say, where are you in this? That's where the disciples are. And Jesus' response to his disciples and to us this morning is, believe in God Believe also in me. The call is to live by faith and not by fear. The call is to trust the reality of his presence despite his apparent absence. But a general kind of abstract belief is not going to do for our, our specifically troubled hearts. Right? We all know this. And so what Jesus says is, is really that you need a belief in something or someone that is robust enough to calm your anxious heart. So Jesus presents himself to us in this passage as the way to a, pre a prepared place, the truth of a perceived person, and the promised, the life in a promised presence. All right, again, these are my main points, and we'll be done with the sermon. But the, the, the main points are Jesus is the way to a prepared place, Jesus is the truth of a perceived person, And Jesus is the life in a promised presence. Now, if you have a Bible or your worship guide, go ahead and get it out now and look with me at verse 1. Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
Where is Jesus going? That's kind of the big question on everybody's mind. Where is he going? And and Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you in the Father's house. That's his response. Now, I had a mentor named Roger. And Roger, his house began as a school bus. But over the years, Roger added on little rooms and a kitchen and plumbing. And it's actually now this kind of palatial house that can sleep upwards of 20 people. I mean, you could say that in my friend Roger's house, there are many rooms. And he prepared it that way. But is that what Jesus is referring to? Is he going to put an addition onto the Father's house for us so that we have a place to crash? I mean, Jesus was a carpenter after all, so this is kind of in his wheelhouse, right? Well, it can't be. Because Jesus says that the Father's house already has many rooms. And so if that's not what he's doing, what is he doing? When Jesus says he's going to prepare a place, he will be using wood and nails. But it's through his work in his crucifixion, his work on the cross, that Jesus prepares a place for us in the Father's house. That's significant to understanding this passage. And and Jesus is a little bit veiled in the way he talks about this to his disciples. But if you were to read the entire book of John, the entire gospel of John, you would notice that the the only other place that Jesus uses this phrase, my father's house, is in John 2.16. And there he's referring to the temple. And so his father's house is temple language. The place where God dwells with humanity. Now, if you study world religions, you just kind of even a cursory study of world religions, you'll notice something. You'll notice that most of them have something like a temple. Most of them have some sort of a a sacred space where God and humans are able to meet with one another. And if you reflect on this a little bit, you'll also see that, that most of them also have this system of rituals, whether it's washings or sacrifices, prayers or penance, these different ways in which people can enter into and participate in the temple. Because you cannot just walk right in. You have to prepare yourself first. And so we might ask ourselves, why is this? Why is it that almost every human culture in all times and all places have had this sense of preparing ourselves before we enter into the the place where the holy dwells? Well, it's because we know in our heart of hearts that if there's a God, there's a gap. If there is a God, there's a gap between that God and human beings, right? Like if we listen to our consciences, if we for a moment don't deaden them or distract ourselves from them, we know that if there is some sort of transcendent being out there, we probably don't measure up. We don't even live up to our own standards, let alone the standards of some divine being, And so we recognize that that we really know that we don't belong in the Father's house. And to this, Jesus responds, you're right. You couldn't be more right. But I go to prepare a place just for you. You see, this is the marvel of grace in Christianity. That there is free access to God through Jesus. Jesus. That even though you ought to have to prepare yourself to enter into the presence of God, Jesus goes before you to prepare a place. 
And so now Jesus says to everybody everywhere that there is open, unhindered welcome in the presence of God through him. But Jesus is not the way in the same sense of like setting up a ladder and teaching you how to climb it properly. That if you just kind of live like he lived, then you can climb the same ladder he did and, and make your way up to God. It's, it's not like that. Jesus is the way in that he himself is the ladder. He is the bridge. He is the one who bridges the gap between God and humanity in himself. And he says, if you have me, you have access to God. And so this is why he says, in my father's house, there are many rooms, many, right? If we had to earn, if we had to work, if we had to prove ourselves that we belong in the father's house, there wouldn't be many rooms because there wouldn't be many people making it there. The, the vacancy sign would always be lit outside the father's house. But Jesus's invitation is not like the invitation to the, the sleepover that you didn't get invited to in middle school. His invitation is, is wide. It's open. He's saying, come one, come all, come make yourself at home in my father's house. This is good news. But that's not all he says. Look with me again at verse six. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, but no one comes to the father except through me. Now, as much as people love the inclusivity of verse two, they hate the exclusivity of verse six. Because the word inclusive is kind of a buzzword in our culture. And, and much of that is good and right. But it's become more than a buzzword. It's actually become a watchword, right? This word inclusive has become kind of the, how you signal that you're in right standing in our society, Inclusive has become the dividing line between who's culturally in and who's culturally out. It's actually ironically become pretty exclusive. And so to suggest that anything, anything at all excludes others is to walk on the thin ice of being called phobic or bigoted. So what do we do with Jesus's very exclusive claim that no one comes to the Father except through him? What do we do with this? Is this not the height of hubris? Is it not utterly arrogant for Jesus to say that Muslims and Jews and Hindus and Buddhists and agnostics do not have access to God? Hasn't this perspective done untold damage in our world? How can Jesus claim this? Well, it brings us to our second point, that Jesus is the truth of a perceived person. Look with me at verses seven through 11. Jesus goes on, he says, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father 
and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Jesus is so identified with God the Father that to see Jesus is to see God himself. Even Philip hears that and thinks, what? What could you possibly mean by that? Remember, Philip spent the last three years with this guy, and he still has a hard time swallowing that pill. But this is important because it's exactly the reason why Jesus can make a bold claim such as, no one comes to the Father except through me. See, Jesus' gentle rebuke of Philip is a glaring reminder to all people that there's more going on with Jesus than just a good teacher or a religious revolutionary. Now, some of you maybe have heard the tale of the four blind men and the elephant. And basically it goes like this. This is kind of a shortened version of it. These four blind men are arguing with one another about what an elephant is like. And so someone comes along and says, hey, why don't you all just come and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you meet an elephant and then hopefully that'll solve some of this problem. So they, they go and, and the first blind man uh, touches the elephant's side and says, oh my goodness, an elephant is wide and broad like a wall. And the next blind man comes and he, he's got the elephant's trunk. He's like, no, 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 it's, it's more like a tree. And then the third one comes along and has its tail. like, uh, it's, it's like a snake or a rope. The fourth one finally comes and is touching its ears like, no, 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 it's more like a palm frond. It's like a giant fan. And they argue with one another over and over, on and on, until somebody finally comes along and says, listen, if you would just discuss this with one another, if you could just get along, then together you could put your pieces into, together and you would be able to kind of solve the puzzle of what an elephant really is. And so the moral of this story is that Every religion really is grasping after the same thing. Every religion is, is really trying to, trying to understand God in its own way. And, and we all kind of have pieces of who God is. And if we would just be able to cooperate and, and really work together, then we would be able to put our kind of God puzzle pieces together and really make sense of who the divine really is. There's actually some laudable aspects to this. But the problem is, is that it assumes that somebody has vision enough to see the whole picture. It took somebody who wasn't blind in order to show the blind men that an elephant is bigger than what they imagined it to be. So likewise, if you make the claim that all religions are really just after the same thing, they're all just kind of grasping after the same God, like blind men touching an elephant— You could only make that claim if you saw the whole picture. If somehow you had some sort of special knowledge of what God is like that none of the other religions ever had. But what is true about this is that we truly are blind. In and of ourselves, we do not have what it takes to know God truly. But we need somebody. We need somebody with vision, one who has seen God, to come and make God known to us. Again, if we were to read all of the book of John, you would begin in John chapter one, verse 18, and it says this, it says, no one has ever seen God, but the only God who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. See, Jesus comes along not just as another messenger from God. There's been plenty of those. Jesus comes along and he says, hey, look at me, and you're looking at God. See me, and you've seen God. 
That's a paraphrase of verse 9. And this is the only way that Jesus can make the claim that those who do not know Jesus do not know God. Those who reject Jesus reject God. That's the only basis on which he can make that kind of a claim. And so this is actually good news. Even though it feels exclusive, it's actually good news because what it means is there's no menacing God kind of hidden behind Jesus. I I actually, I hear this sometimes, and maybe you would put it in different words, but you have the same kind of sentiment in your own heart. I hear things along the lines of, you know, Jesus and I are kind of on the same page, like we're on good terms, but, but God is a little cold and distant. Jesus, I think, would look at you, and, and you would see compassion in his eyes as he asked you, do you not believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? Because whoever has seen God has seen, whoever has seen me has seen God. Consider for a moment what it says about, about God. That when he shows up on earth in the person, Jesus of Nazareth, water is turned into wine. Just consider what that says about this kind of God. Bread is multiplied to feed the hungry. The blind are given sight. The deaf hear. The mute speak. Demons are cast out. The sick are healed. Hypocrites are rebuked. Outcasts are welcomed in. Oppressors are judged. The dead are raised and sinners are forgiven. That's what happened when this God showed up on the scene. And so it's good news because when you consider what that says about this God, we, we actually can know God through the person of Jesus. But this is also why an encounter with Jesus like you're having right here, right now, when Jesus is portrayed before you, it makes a claim on you. You cannot be passive about this person. You must act. You must choose. Choosing to do nothing is choosing. He is so controversial. He is so unique. He's not some guru or revolutionary. He makes a claim on you as soon as you meet him as a person. And so how will you respond? How are you going to respond to the person of Jesus that you're hearing about this morning? Instead of coming up with our own God, a God of our own making, Jesus says, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Because here's the claim, God has gone public in the first century in a Middle Eastern man named Jesus of Nazareth. It's audacious, I get it, but that's the claim being made here. And so because God, because Jesus has put God on display, we can know God through him and him alone. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says this, Jesus is the perfect combination of exclusivity and inclusivity, making impossible grace accessible to every possible person. That's good news. But in Jesus, we look forward to a place prepared for us in the Father's house. We look back to perceive God the Father in him. And in Jesus, the very life of God is available to us now in a promised presence. So if you would, look again with me at verse 12 through 17. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do. Because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. 
If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. To summarize, because of Jesus, the fullness of God is going to take up residence in you. No more need for a temple, because God is no longer dwelling in a specific space and time. He's dwelling in a particular people through Jesus. Here is the the fullest antidote to our troubled hearts. The promised presence of the Spirit of God within us. Now in verse 16, the Spirit is called the helper or the counselor or the advocate. For any lawyers in the room, it's a law term. The Spirit is the one, that word means he's the one who kind of is called alongside. What Jesus is talking about here is not just another doctrine to believe, but a felt presence, a real experience of the Holy Spirit within us. And I have to confess, as I prepared for this sermon, I was, I was brought to my knees in light of that part right there. Because my own experience of the Spirit of God within me is weak and feeble. But I want more. I want more, and I'm sure some of you do too. I mean, do you experience the presence of the Spirit in your life? Do you experience him convicting you of sin? Do you experience him comforting you with a deep peace? Do you know what it's like to be empowered by him to live lovingly moment by moment? Does he testify to your spirit that you are a child of God? If not, ask for this. Plead for it. Jesus says in this context, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Surely he will answer that that prayer. It's a reality that can be had. Otherwise, this whole promise about the Spirit would be kind of nonsense if it wasn't experiential enough to calm our troubled hearts. Now, as we come to a close, some of you have been tracking with me this whole time. Thank you. But you still are a little bit skeptical. You're sitting there thinking, well, how do we know that Jesus really is who he says he is? These are bold claims. And you're, you're wondering, how do we really know that he's the way, the truth, and the life? On what basis are we putting our belief? It's a good question. I'm really glad you asked. Because Jesus doesn't want you to believe without knowledge. He's not asking for a blind leap of faith. Because Jesus knows that belief feasts on knowledge. And so what is the basis for our belief? Look with me at verses 18 through 20. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. In verse 19, he says, yet a little while and the world will see me no more. In a little while from where Jesus is, having table talk with his disciples, he's going to go to the cross and he's going to face judgment for all who trust in him. That's what he's talking about in verse 19. But that's not the end of his story because verse 19 goes on and it says, but you 
will see me, disciples. Because Jesus is here assuring his disciples that three days after his death, he will rise from the dead and he's going to appear before them. He's going to make himself known to them, living, no longer dead. But he only appears to his disciples. But interestingly, it says that he appears not only to those 12, but to more than 500 of them. And this, among plenty of other things, makes Jesus' resurrection a well-attested historical fact that you have to do something with. You cannot avoid reckoning with the resurrection of Jesus. But consider for a moment the alternative. Consider what it would be like to face life and death without the hope of resurrection. I know a few people that have articulated this better than John Updike in his Olinger stories. He writes about an experience that his main character, David, had. This is what he says. Without warning, David was visited by an exact vision of death, a long hole in the ground, no wider than your body, down which you are drawn while the white faces above recede. You try to reach them, but your arms are pinned. Shovels put dirt into your face. There you will be forever in an upright position, blind and silent, and in time no one will remember you, and you will never be called by any angel. As strata of rock shift, your fingers elongate, and your teeth are distended sideways in a great underground grimace indistinguishable from a strip of chalk. And the earth tumbles on, and the sun expires, and unaltering darkness reigns where once there were stars. It's pretty dark. It's pretty dark, but without the resurrection of Jesus, we look forward to the earth tumbling on, the sun expiring, and unaltering darkness reigning where once there were stars. Like most modern scientists would say that the sun's going to burn out, and this is going to be the eventual future. That's everyone's future without the hope of resurrection. And so, why wouldn't your heart be troubled if that was your eventual fate? Don't you at least want the resurrection of Jesus to be true? The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the ground of our hope. It is true. It is good news. That's why Jesus says in verse 20, in that day you will know In that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. In that day when he rises from the dead, you will have knowledge. Your belief will be based on fact, an event that really occurred in history. And so Jesus says to to you and me and all of us this morning, believe in God, believe also in me. And he promises because I live, you also will live. Our hope, our life, our future is integrally wrapped up in Jesus. And if you trust in the risen Jesus, you have the only hope that can pacify a troubled heart.